Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. So today I would like to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to start in Exodus 26. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. We will be jumping all around today. But it's interesting to me whenever you start mentioning the Holy Spirit, you sometimes will get two major responses. Now, I understand there are many responses in the middle ground, but you'll get two major responses. One is uh, you get people who focus solely upon this kind of the spectacular works of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. You, you look at the incredible healing, or you look at the speaking in tongues, and you look at those types of events in Scripture and focus solely upon those to the exclusion of other things. On the other hand, you have sometimes uh, the response, or a sometimes response, is when you start mentioning the Holy Spirit, and some people say, I'm kind of uncomfortable with that. That topic makes me uncomfortable. And one of the reasons it makes people uncomfortable, it may be because they've encountered this other response so often, but sometimes we're uncomfortable because we don't understand the work of the Holy Spirit and what he does. And the Holy Spirit, it is not an it, he is not an it, he is a he, all right? Uh, The Holy Spirit is a person, not just an impersonal force. So we understand, we say Holy Spirit, we are talking about the third person of the Trinity. But sometimes people get really nervous or a little bit anxious because the Holy Spirit is one that we do not control. And since we're not in control of the Holy Spirit, sometimes we get very concerned. Well, I don't want to get too far into that because I don't understand it fully. And so today, by no means is this exhaustive because we could spend the rest of the year and into the next year talking about the different works of the Holy Spirit found throughout the Bible. But I just want us to look today at some things that we find in the biblical text about the work of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works from the inside out. When the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, he works certain things in us. And because of that, that comes out in our living. And I think a good place to start is to go all the way back to the book of Exodus. And in Exodus 26, and some other verses around that, some other texts around that, we find that God is giving all of the details, all of the specifications about how the temple and how the, I'm sorry, how the tabernacle, the temple wasn't in existence at this time, but how the tabernacle, that mobile tent of meeting, so to speak, as they moved around in the wilderness, how it was to be constructed. And how worship was to take place in there. And there was a particular piece of that tabernacle that we talk about often. And we throw this out and we, and we talk about it. But sometimes we don't fully understand the significance of it. And that is the veil. The veil that, was the, that separated the other places in the tabernacle from the most holy place. Sometimes referred to as the holy of holies. And so you find in Exodus 26 a mention of this veil, starting in verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and finely twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. 
And you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold and hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate you from the, separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark and the testimony of the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. So God lays out how this is to look. And he says that in the most holy place, you are to put the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing God's presence with his people. And it was where one day out of the year, the high priest would go to make atonement for the sins of the people. Sometimes people say, oh yeah, and the, and the high priest would have a rope tied around his foot. So in case he went in there and sinned, they could drag him out. Can I just tell you, that's not found anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible is that found. And, and that, that was just a, a tradition that was passed on from extra biblical sources, but that's not in the Bible. I had a guy say, well, what would happen if he sinned? And I said, listen, if he sinned while offering a sacrifice, the worst problem they had was not a dead high priest in the Holy of Holies. The worst problem they had was that they are now not able to receive forgiveness for their sins. So it's not like, oh, we got a dead high priest. We have to drag him out and start all over again. No, you've just messed up the whole thing. So you find that within this veil, you have cherubim woven into it. These, these high angelic beings in the order which you find that they're guarding the way, they're guarding that path, they're guarding that way to the presence of God. It's a throwback to Eden when you find that these angels were posted at Eden so that no one could go back into Eden. And so you find the same thing happening here, played out here in the tabernacle. You can't just go willy-nilly at any time you want into the presence of God. It was a separation. There was a veil that separated the presence of God from the people, and that was done for their protection. And the representative would go behind the veil, and he, the priest, and he would offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. But then what happens in the New Testament? Well, flash forward and you have the New Testament. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was not in the temple in the New Testament. After the Babylonians had invaded, the Ark is lost. It's, it was lost to history. And some people say it's here and some people say it's there, but, but we, we don't have any definitive answer as to what happened to it or where it is. But you find that when Jesus was on the cross and Jesus dies, in Mark chapter 15, verse 37, we find these words. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is that veil. This is the veil that, that the veil constructed for the tabernacle, now there is a veil in the temple and it symbolized that, that blocking or blocking that passage into the presence of God. And now when Jesus dies, that veil tears, opening up the most holy place. And instead of it being blocked off, now it is opened because Jesus opened up that way so that we might have access to the very presence of God. That's the idea of the veil tearing. 
You find in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, the writer of Hebrews pens these words. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we can go into the presence of God himself, something that was once only reserved for the priest, the high priest, one day a year, we can live in his presence continually. How can we enter the most holy places? Verse 20 of Hebrews 10. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Jesus was that veil, so to speak. The glory of God was hidden behind that humanity of Jesus. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he completes the work of salvation. He completes the work of redemption. Now we have access to God through Jesus. But not only that, not only do we have access to God through Jesus, but God, his presence, his spirit is now no longer localized. The presence of God would inhabit that space. You find in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 that when Solomon dedicates the temple, fire comes down from heaven. And the glory of God fills that temple to the point that the priests had to get out of there. They just couldn't even stand in there. They couldn't stand the very glory of God. So you flash forward to the book of Acts. And you have that they are, the, the believers are gathered together. And then fire comes down and rests upon them. And they're speaking in known languages and other people are hearing them speak and giving testimony to the glory of God. But you find that it's not that it's localized in one room in the temple. Now, those who follow Christ have the very presence of God dwelling in them. And so that's what we have as followers of Christ. As followers of Christ, the presence of God is not localized. It's not isolated. It's not, it's not kind of hemmed into one little place. Now the presence of God lives within his people in the person of the Holy Spirit. Imagine this. The same glory, the same power, the, 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 the same display of God's power that came and filled the Old Testament tabernacle, that came and filled the temple in Solomon's day, that same power, that same glory, if you're a follower of Christ, now resides within you, within us. That's the biblical truth. Now, if that's the case, there are some other things that should be true as well, or that not should be true, that are true as well. If you have the Holy Spirit living within you, there are certain things that we know. The first one is this. With the Holy Spirit within us, we practice a spirit-created unity with each other. The Holy Spirit brings unity with other people who have the Spirit living within them. Living within them and living by the Spirit. Okay, we'll talk more about that in a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth and he's telling them, listen, there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. It's not that, well, I'm a Jew. So as a Jew, I received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And you as a non-Jew, you're only receiving a portion of the Holy Spirit. It's not what he says. 
oh, well, you, I am a free person, and this other person is a servant, this other person is a slave. Therefore, this free person has received a bigger helping, a bigger piece of the Holy Spirit pie than this other person. That's not what he says. No. He says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We have all received the Holy Spirit if we're followers of Christ, if we're true followers of Christ. And that creates a unity, no matter our background, no matter where we come from, no matter the socioeconomic class, no matter any of the education, no matter the job, no matter any of this. If we are followers of Christ, then we have the commonality of the Holy Spirit living within us. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, it doesn't, you, you don't belong to Christ. Because that, we're going to talk about this in a second, that's a sign of ownership. When the Holy Spirit is living within you, that is an absolute sign of the ownership of Christ over your life, over you. And so we have this unity that is created. A.W. Tozer has a, had a great example many, many years ago. He wrote that if you have 100 pianos and you start trying to, to tune these pianos and try to tune this piano to that piano and this other piano to this other piano, you're going to have a problem. He said, but if you have an objective standard, if you have a tuning fork and you tune the first piano to the tuning fork, and you tune the second piano to the tuning fork, and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, all the way up to the 100th piano, and they're all tuned to the same tuning fork, then by default, all the pianos will be tuned with each other because all of them have been tuned to an outside standard. And he says that's the same way it works with the Holy Spirit. If, if each of us is in tune with the Holy Spirit, and I know I've used this example before, but it's a great example. If, if each of us is in tune with the Holy Spirit, we will by default be in tune with each other. Does that mean we're always going to agree with each other? No. Does that mean we're always going to, to, to like each other's personalities and just mesh really well? No. All right? That's where sanctification takes place. You know, we, we're all less than entirely sanctified. Okay? We're all works in progress. But the point is, so far as the spiritual things are concerned, there is a unity that comes. Ephesians mentions this Ephesians 2 21 in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord to him or in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit we are the dwelling place of God but then together we are growing together and becoming a clearer and a clearer expression of the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. So the question is, where there is disunity, do you find a reliance upon the Holy Spirit? Because if you're relying upon the Holy Spirit and you're seeking the Holy Spirit, and you're seeking the work of the Holy Spirit, and you're relying upon God's Word, okay? God's Word is never going to be contradictory to a work of the Holy Spirit. There was a guy I talked to one time, and he told me, he said, I don't even read my Bible anymore because, now this was not a Mississippian, this was a Tennessean, so you can all go, well, okay, that explains it. Um, somebody asked me, what do you do when you go to Tennessee? I tell Mississippi stories, but anyway. Um, but somebody, somebody had told me, they said, I no longer read my Bible because I'm so close to the Holy Spirit, he gives me direct revelation. 
He said, what do you think about that? I said, that's how cults get started. Okay. No, it has to, anything, any impression, any thought, if it does not check out with the Bible, he says, but no, I've reached a deeper level. I said, no, 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 no. There is no deeper level than God's word. The Holy Spirit will not contradict the word of God. So we must rely upon the word of God. And that word of God brings that unity whenever we're centered on the word of God. Is there any sort of disunity going on maybe in your life? Would you be willing to say, God, I'm asking you by the power of the Holy Spirit, will you please bring unity to this area? Point out something that's creating this disunity. Whatever's creating this disunity, God, I, I, I want to exercise that spirit, that spirit created unity with other believers. The next thing we find is this. We enjoy a spirit sealed security in Christ. We practice a spirit created unity with each other. We enjoy a spirit sealed uh, spirit seal security in Christ. John 14. Listen to the words of Jesus. This is verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. The Holy Spirit's going to dwell with you and stay with you forever. Why is that important? It's important because when you look back in the Old Testament, there is there, there is a, a common occurrence, I say a common occurrence, it is the, the common way of referring to this occurrence. The Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit coming upon people. You look through the book of Judges, you find it says, and the Spirit of God came upon Samson. The Spirit of God came upon this other judge. You know, sometimes the Spirit of God comes upon this prophet. And, and you find that sometimes people will take that Old Testament occurrence, the fact that it was a temporary empowerment. All through the Old Testament, it was a temporary empowerment for a specific task, purpose, or season. That's the idea of the, the Holy Spirit empowering people in the Old Testament. That's why you find in the Psalms, David prays, do not take your spirit from me. And now in looking at the New Testament, Sometimes, if we're not careful, we'll make the mistake of trying to apply that to the New Testament. And we'll say, well, David prayed, don't take, my spirit, don't take your spirit from me. That means I can lose the Holy Spirit. No, the Old Testament, it was a temporary empowerment for a particular task or purpose or season. In the New Testament, after Pentecost and, and a little beyond, you find the pattern is the Holy Spirit indwells the person who believes at the time of salvation and does not leave it's not a temporary empowerment it is a permanent indwelling the bible talks about and so we find there's a difference in those two so you find jesus saying i'm going to give you another helper i'm going to pray that the lord will give you another helper i'm praying my father will send you another helper and he will be with you forever it won't be a temporary empowerment for a particular task purpose or season but it will be a permanent indwelling and the holy spirit himself will live within you and there's a security that comes with that second corinthians chapter 1 verse 21 paul writes and it is god who establishes us with you in christ and has anointed us and who also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee a seal in these times is something that would show ownership. We referred to this earlier. It's something that would show ownership, 
but it's also something that would keep the contents of that scroll or that letter secure. It showed to whom it belonged, the person who could open it, and that meant nobody else belongs, nobody else is involved in this except for the person who's sending it and the person who's going to receive it, and it would show this is the ownership. So seals were a sign of security. They were a sign of ownership. And so Paul writes and says, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a seal on our salvation. And not only that, as a guarantee. Literally, it's the word earnest money. You pay a down payment for what you're going to complete the payment on. You pay a down payment and you say, this is my promise that I'm going to complete this payment. I know sometimes we say, yeah, but people make down payments and they don't finish their payments. Okay, we're not talking about human humans in their imperfect way of doing things we're talking about god who has made a down payment and god is going to finish what he starts ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory there it is again he's our seal and he's our down payment our guarantee our earnest money and you say well what is so what so what we're secure in christ that's a big so what because when you live from a place where you're operating from security in christ you have freedom now to love him, to live for him, to live out this truth. And, and notice, it says, he is the guarantee of our inheritance. We have an inheritance that's waiting on us. It is a guarantee that we're going to receive that inheritance. Now, again, sometimes you talk to people and they'll make statements like this. Well, that sounds all well and good. But if I believed that I was eternally secure, what would keep me from going out and living however I wanted to live? You ever heard that argument? People make that argument. What would keep me from going out and just living however I want to live and sinning and doing whatever? If I thought I was eternally secure, that's what I would do. Well, here's what people who make those statements are completely ignoring. The fact that the Holy Spirit gives you a change of desires. Because if you say, if I didn't have this threat of losing it over my head, I'd go out and do whatever. That's a pretty clear indication either, A, you don't have the Holy Spirit, or B, you are not living by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit changes our want-tos. The Holy Spirit begins to work in our... Sure, we have sinful desires, but the Holy Spirit convicts us and deals with us over these things. And so now we're compelled because we love Christ and we want to obey Christ. The whole thing that compels us is not, well, if I sin, I'm going to lose my salvation and then I'm going to mess up and then I'm, it's all going to be for naught and I'm going to, then I'm just going to, I'm going to be lost again. That's not what you find through the Bible. You find that we're sealed, that it's a guarantee. And now we have freedom to obey. Not freedom to sin, freedom to obey. But living in that Christ-given security, that christ spirit seal christ given spirit seal security once we're living in that we have the freedom to pursue him we have the freedom to live for him we don't have to be we're no longer slaves to sin and we don't have to obey what sin says 
There's an old story about the, the man who was a sailor aboard a, an old sailing ship. And he was, he was a sailor, and he was basically a servant. He was a slave because he had to serve on that ship because he owed a great debt. And he was sent to sea to pay that debt, to work it off for a number of years. And when the day came that he was freed from that debt, and he could leave that ship the next time that it made port, he was free. He was, he was free from that debt. That debt had been completely paid. And the story goes that many weeks later, he was walking through along that same wharf. And that ship was there at port. And it was still, it was still piloted by that angry old sea captain that he had served for all those years. And as the man was walking along, the captain came to the edge of the deck and shouted down to the wharf and told his men to get aboard. And this man turned on his heels and began to walk back toward the ship. And then he realized, oh, I don't have to listen to that voice anymore. My debt's been paid. I'm free of that master. I'm completely free of that cruelty. I don't have to serve him anymore. And that's the same way it is with sin in our own lives. When the Holy Spirit has set us free because that Holy Spirit is indwelling us because of the sacrifice of Christ and we are freed in Christ to now obey him and pursue him. And then when sin says, hey, get back aboard, we don't have to get back aboard. We don't have to. We can say, no, no, that's not, I, I'm, I'm not motivated by that anymore. No, I don't, have, I don't have to line up under you anymore. I'm free because I have a spirit seal security in Christ. And then finally, with the spirit living within us, we pursue a spirit-led life of holiness. We pursue a spirit-led life of holiness. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. This goes back to what we talked about in the opening. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He writes to the church at Corinth, you're God's temple. You people, you're God's temple. God is living within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. He is in you now. You find the same thing mentioned a little later in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. This is in the context of sexual immorality. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul writes and says, you don't belong to yourself. The Holy Spirit lives within you. Now you are the temple of God. And so therefore you are to glorify God in your body because the Holy Spirit lives within you. Paul could have used different terms here. He could have said, God, your body is the house of the Holy Spirit. Your, your body is a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't. He uses the word temple. He uses the word temple because he's talking about everything that you think, what you look at, how you live. All of that points back to worship. Now, you are, you are 24-7 you presence of the holy living God temple. That's what every one of us is who belongs to Christ. But growing up, um, I grew up in a little country church over on the other side of the state. And some evenings, whenever uh, we, would, we would have evening service, and then we, you know, we always had to eat, right? Everybody had to eat afterwards. And I remember that some of us kids, we would go into 
the sanctuary and we would sit around or we would play or whatever. And I remember this woman came in there one time and she said, and we weren't doing anything destructive or anything like that, but she walked in and she's like, you shouldn't play in the sanctuary. This is the place where God dwells. And even then, with a little bit of theological knowledge, I said, I thought God dwelt within us in the Holy Spirit. Well, then my mom got called into this. Your son is being a theological smart aleck. Not a lot has changed, but um, (laughs) some would say. But the point is, I understand what she was saying. She's saying, this is where we come to worship. We We want to respect the space. I get that, absolutely. But that's not where God lives. God does not live within a localized space of a room. It may be where we meet him, we may have great memories of him, but the Holy Spirit of God lives within the followers of Christ. Which led me to wonder, as I grew older, why is it that there are things that we would never think about doing or saying within the walls of the church, but we have no problem thinking or saying it within the boundaries of the temple of God, the true temple of God, where the Holy Spirit is dwelling 24-7, and that is within us. And so there's a, there's, we have to understand the holiness that God has called us to, the holiness that we are to pursue. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. We're not just saved from something, we're saved for something. We're not just sanitized from sin, we are sanctified for holiness. And so with this in mind, it's not just a matter of, I'm going to do well, I'm going to live for God, so I'm just going to avoid sin. It's not just a matter of avoiding sin, we must pursue holiness. So we are given, we are to pursue a spirit-led life of holiness. Well, what happens whenever we do sin? Does that mean God takes his Holy Spirit from us? No. But the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Bible's clear about this. Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Don't cause him grief. The Holy Spirit can grieve, and we can grieve him. Well, how do we grieve him? Well, think about this. Whenever we sin, whenever I sin, what I'm doing is this. I am taking the very presence of God into the midst of that sinful activity, that sinful thought, that sinful whatever. I am taking the very Spirit of God with me. It is, it is essentially... I am in the middle of the temple, in the middle of the most holy place, sinning before in the presence of God and taking him along with it. Now, I know some people would say, well, that, make, that sounds like we're motivating people by guilt. No, 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 no. I'm not trying to motivate people by guilt. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to beat somebody up over their sin, myself included. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to say, this is how serious it is. This is why God takes sin so seriously in the lives of his children is nobody we're we're not getting off with it it's not a matter of well i'm getting off scot-free because you know it's okay god's just going to show me grace god disciplines us and we grieve his spirit i don't want to grieve the spirit of god and this is why that we are to pursue this life of holiness we are to as the bible says work out our salvation 
That doesn't mean that we have to work to keep our salvation. That doesn't mean that we work to gain our salvation. It means that we're working from this place of salvation. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Understanding it's a holy calling. That's a serious thing. And, and I know people say, well, I don't think God would want us to be fearful. No, this is that reverential awe. We are to work out our own salvation. We are to, again, not working for our salvation, not working to maintain our salvation. Because we have that spirit, that spirit security in Christ. What, I'm talk, what the Bible is talking about is that because we have that security, because we have that freedom, then we work from that salvation. We work it out. We let it be known. We have the freedom to have an expression, that's the idea, to work it inside out, that inside out life, we are expressing the work of the Holy Spirit through salvation that has been given to us. And how does that come out? We pursue lives of holiness. We're not going to do it perfectly, but we pursue it. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, that's not a legalistic arrangement there, but that's the idea of working out that salvation. Sometimes people make a mistake because we take this idea of work out our salvation and we make it into a a transactional arrangement. If I do this, then God will do that. If I don't do this, then God will reward me this way. A, A tit for tat, this for that. I do this, you do that. I don't do this, then you will do this. An if-then type of arrangement. This transactional arrangement. This is not a transactional arrangement. This is a transformational relationship with God is what we have. It's not a transactional arrangement. We have this transformational relationship. And God transforms us by the person of the Holy Spirit more and more in the likeness of his son. So if we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Let us walk in lockstep with the leading of the Holy Spirit as he reveals through God's word. Now that's hard. What does that require? We put to death sin in our own life by the spirit. We say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to deny myself and follow Christ. I'm going to say no to myself. That's what deny yourself means. To say no to yourself based upon what God's word says. God's word says this, and my flesh wants to go here, and, but God's word says this, and so I'm going to say no to my flesh. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to rely upon his power to continue to say no. That's the idea that we find as we pursue spirit-led lives of holiness. Going all the way back, as we close, going all the way back to the Old Testament, there in the temple, you had... And in the tabernacle, you had the priest going in and offering sacrifices on that day of atonement, which is, this is, this is the time of year uh, in the Jewish calendar for the day of atonement. And they would go into the day of, uh, they would go in on the day of atonement and they would offer those sacrifices. You find in Romans chapter 12, verse one, now that we have the Holy Spirit living within us and now we have the very presence of God and we are the temple of God. Listen to Romans 12, one in that light. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. That's the word that is used of presenting an Old Testament sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We present our bodies, we present our minds, our emotions, our heart, our desires, our motives, our hopes, our dreams. We lay all of that before God. We present ourselves as a living sacrifice to him. Daily laying ourselves on the altar. Daily giving ourselves over to God. Why? Because we belong to him anyway. Because we, 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 we are his purchased possession. He bought us with the blood of Christ. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And so we belong to him now. And so now we're not our own as we just looked at. We're not our own. We belong to him. We've been sealed. We're secure. We've been called to, sanctify, to be sanctified. He's working out that sanctification in us, and we are pursuing holiness and cooperating with His Spirit and, and delving into His Word. And as we do that, we're putting ourselves on the altar. There was a kid I taught. His name was Jesse. We had a devotion time in the school that I taught up in Tennessee every morning, in our morning class. We had a short time of, of, of devotion, Bible devotion. And I remember one time I read Romans 12, 1. We were to present ourselves as living sacrifices. And we were about to go into prayer time, and I remember Jesse raised his hand. And he said, you know, Mr. George, there's one major problem that I see with a living sacrifice. And I said, what's that, Jesse? And he said, well, seems to me like it always tries to crawl off the altar. And that took me aback. And now, every, uh, years and years later, every time I read Romans 12, 1, I think about that comment that Jesse made. And Jesse was there at our school for, for years. He graduated from the school, but he was probably in ninth or 10th grade when that happened. But for throughout the rest of those years that he was there, every now and then he would walk by me and, Jesse, how you doing? Ah, uh, having one of those days. So what kind of day is that? And he said, living sacrifice, want to crawl off the altar. And that's where we all live, right? We all present ourselves as living sacrifices. We are all called to present ourselves as living sacrifices. But the temptation is to just kind of slide off the altar, slide out of the way of that knife, not die to self, not give ourselves fully, not surrender ourselves fully, just hold back just enough, just in case that what God has planned isn't exactly what's going to be the most comfortable. And so we hold back just enough so that, well, maybe the knife will miss this. God calls us to lay ourselves bare before him and say, God, I'm yours. I surrender completely. I'm not my own. I was bought by the blood of Christ. I'm your slave. You're my master. You're my king. I'm your follower. You're, you are the father, the good father who is Lord over all things. And I am your child who is depending upon you for everything. That's what he calls us to. That's exactly what he calls us to. There is nothing sweeter than seeing God himself dwelling within you, being expressed to a world that needs that witness of the power of God to transform lives. And that's exactly what happens when we live inside out lives. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the power of your spirit. Thank you for the presence of your spirit. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. 
And Father, I pray if there's anybody here today who would say, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know that power. I don't know that presence. I don't know that gift. I don't know what it's like to, to have that God-given unity. I don't know what it's like to have that security and knowing where I'm going to spend eternity. I don't, I don't know what it's like, that blessing of pursuing holiness. Father, I pray if that would be anybody's statement, anybody's heart today, whether they're here physically present with us or whether they're watching or listening either now or later, Father, I pray that they might surrender today, that you would draw them to yourself. Father, you've shown us in your word so very clearly, and we've looked at it today, that as we were separated from you because of our sin. Our sin separates us from you. It's not just a physical veil. Our sin separates us from you. But when we receive Christ, when we trust that he is who he says he is, he is God. He is fully God and fully man. And he did what he said that he did, which is die on a cross in our place for our sins and paid the penalty for our sin, the sin that separates us from you. And in doing so, if we trust that that sacrifice was made for us and that sacrifice is, is sufficient and we surrender our lives to Christ, then that barrier of sin is done away with. That barrier is taken away. And we are given the blessing of your presence. We are giving given the the blessing of you dwelling within us we are given the blessing of you empowering us to live for you father i pray today would be the day that someone would say yes to you yes to christ yes to a life that has been purchased by his blood and sealed by your spirit and father i pray for those of us here who who are followers of christ And Father, sometimes it's just so hard. The living sacrifice wants to slide off the altar and miss the knife. Father, I pray that today we would take that step and say, God, I desire to pursue a life of holiness. I want to see that Holy Spirit given unity in my life. Father, I want to live with that security and knowing what Christ has fully accomplished on the cross. And I want to I want to operate from that place, that place of grace and mercy and love. Father, I pray that you would go before us and go before us as a church, not just as individuals, but as a church. And you might bring that unity and you might bring that obedience and you might bring that that continual pursuit of holiness and that you might work in us afresh and we might see it powerfully, powerfully, seen and manifest in our lives and in the life of our church so that a world that is lost and dying would know that there is a God and that he lives and that we serve him and that he can be known through Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.